Well, as we begin, we're in chapter 17 of the book of Matthew, and I want to remind you of the recent progression of events that have taken place in the last couple of chapters. In the beginning of chapter 16, we know the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus asking for a sign from heaven. We look a little bit more into the idea of signs, prophetic signs, and and what is so clear in the world today. We're going to be talking more on Sunday about, in, in kind of a part two prophecy update, about more things going on in our world that are indicative of Jesus' return, His very soon return, I believe. But after the Pharisees and Sadducees, they come asking for that sign from heaven and they have some discourse with Jesus. After that, Jesus takes the apostles away. Away from the threatening Pharisees, away from the throngs of the people, He takes them north up to Caesarea Philippi on a 30-mile journey by foot. What would it have been like to just travel those 30 miles? You know, that's the aspect of the Gospel story that we don't get. We get what the Lord wants us to have and what is best for growing our faith and nurturing our belief in Him. But what we don't get are the side stories. You know, those 30 miles. Well, what happened? What did they talk about? What did they eat? Where did they, where did they stop along the way? But they traveled up to the north, to Caesarea Philippi, Banyas today, where Peter makes that great bedrock confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Immediately after that, Jesus begins to reveal clearly His death. His crucifixion, His resurrection. He's not, he's not painting it in terms of parables as He had a couple of times before. He's not being mysterious about it. He's being absolutely clear about it to the point that the apostles are upset by it. Even Peter at that point turns around and, and rebukes him and says, No, Lord, never. This should never happen to you. We're, we're not going to allow this to happen. And Jesus turns to Peter, the very man who just proclaimed Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. For you don't have the things of God in mind. Well, after that, he takes Peter and James and John up a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon in the north. And there on the mountain, he is transfigured before them. Metamorphous. His clothes become as white as light. His face like the shining of the sun. In that amazing expression, that amazing preview of the coming King and His Kingdom, they get to see Jesus momentarily wearing the glory from before and the glory to come. And they're amazed, blown away by it. I mean, talk about a mountaintop experience. We use that phrase, talking about retreats or or getaways. Wow, I was up on the mountaintop. Can you imagine really being up on the mountaintop with Jesus? And I, I believe, as I said recently, that this whole couple of chapters especially beginning when they head up to Caesarea Philippi, this is a retreat. This is a discipleship retreat for Jesus and the Twelve to get away and to really get intense and deal with some things and talk about some things. And it culminates with that fantastic experience, at least for three of them, Peter, James, and John, of seeing Jesus transfigured. The thing is, for any lofty mountaintop experience, we eventually have to come down from the mountain. And if you've been in that place, as I know many of you are, oftentimes when we do come down the mountain, hardship is just waiting for us. Something to try and knock down a bit of that great experience that we have just had. We shouldn't be surprised. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He says, Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4. Let endurance have its perfect result. You know when endurance needs to have its perfect result? It needs time. It just needs time. 
Endurance needs time to have its perfect result in us. We want it now, but God is working long term in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not an hour after you start down this walk, not in a couple days, not in a few weeks, not when you're an adult, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Until the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are on this faith walk. And our faith hopefully is growing at a constant. But always growing. Well, Peter, James, and John, they've already been honored with the revelation of Jesus Christ up on the mountain. So they come down the mountain with Jesus. And as they come down, the retreat is over. The getaway has got away and harsh life is waiting for them. We begin in verse 14 of chapter 17. When they came to the crowd... A man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. My son's a lunatic. The word lunatic there, in verse 15, is probably the best, most literal translation of the word. It's a Greek word, selenazomai. Selenazomai. Now I tell you that because there's a root word for that which is selos and the Greek means moon. Lunacy, lunar, lunatic. It's a word that the Greeks used to describe something that, that apparently wasn't fully understood and that was epilepsy. That if someone was called a lunatic it was because they fell into seizures. And in fact in the description of this in the book of Mark you see more of that. I'll show you that in just a moment. They believe that lunacy or seizures or even epilepsy was impacted or caused by the cycles of the moon. But we know in this story that the moon had nothing to do with it. The devil was in the details. This is a demon possession. A demonic possession that we're talking about here. But there is lunacy here. There is lunacy. And the lunacy is this, that a heart-rending request for healing from this despairing father is turned into a heated religious argument. Let me read you Mark's expanded version of this. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Then he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, saying, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him into the ground. And he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Imagine just being in the place of that father. For those of you who are parents or have been parents, you can imagine watching your child go through painful moments, difficult times. I don't know if there's anything harder in life than watching your kids deal with pain and heartache, especially when you can't do anything about it. This father had been dealing with this how long? I don't know. For years? How old was the man's son? We don't know. Where was the mother? We don't know. We can make all kinds of guesses about this story. The one thing we know is this dad is at the end of his rope. And he comes looking for Jesus because he's heard that there's someone who can work miracles and nothing else works. He watches his son fall into these horrible, demonically driven seizures that, that... 
the demon inside him is trying to kill him, gang. When he's near water, it tries to throw him in water. When he's near fire, it tries to throw him in the fire. And Dad has no ability to stop this. There's nothing he can do. He just watches it happen and, and at best maybe hold his son until the seizing stops. And so he comes looking for Jesus, finds the apostles, the nine. Remember, Peter, James, and John weren't with them at the time. They're with Jesus. Finds the nine and thinks, oh good, Jesus people, they can help me. They, they can cast out this demon. I, I've got the Jesus people here. And instead of getting help, what does he get? Debate. He finds himself in the midst of a religious argument between Jesus' people and the scribes. People fighting over what's, what's really going on here. This theological squabble. Unbelievable. No wonder Jesus responded the way He did in verse 17. He answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you? Answer to the question, did Jesus ever get exasperated? <laughs> How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Jesus almost angrily issues two rebukes, the second of which is easy. The second rebuke, Jesus casts out the demon. He rebukes the demon. You have no place here. Get out! And immediately the demon gets out. We've seen Jesus do this before. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, if you've been reading through, this is not a surprise. This is the fourth or fifth time it's happened where Jesus casts out demons. We see Him do it. We, we recognize, and the people began to recognize, this was a sign of His anointed authority as Mashiach. The Bible said Messiah would, would do things like this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, said a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and He healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? And you may remember a few chapters back when we looked at it. This phrase, the son of David, was a, was a name for Messiah. It was a Hebrew moniker for Messiah. That they knew the prophecy. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God said to David, I will put a son of yours on your throne and he will reign forever. And that was Messiah. And the Jewish people were looking forward to Messiah. So when they said Son of David, they're referring, this man can't be Messiah, can he? Could this be Messiah? Why would they say that? Because he's doing supernatural things and he has authority over the spirit realm. He's revealing in his miracles the kind of power Messiah was expected to have. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 18. It said, On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord. And the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 say the following, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And of course that great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Isaiah spoke those words 750 years before Jesus took that verse and applied it to himself at the outset of his ministry there in Nazareth. You may recall that. He applied it to himself. I am the one who is speaking these words, who Isaiah was talking about back then. So by this point in time, 
in Jesus' public ministry, casting out a demon by rebuke was a no-brainer. It's something we should expect and not be surprised by. And I'll say again something I said recently. When we are a Jesus-loving church, as we pursue and follow after Jesus, miraculous things should not surprise us. The supernatural becomes natural. It becomes commonplace. Not boring. Not any less wonderful. But just, yeah, of course. Of course Jesus is going to heal you. Of course Jesus is going to meet that need. Of course Jesus knows where we're at and has the right miracle for the occasion. doesn't mean that we're chasing down miracles, but we're chasing down Jesus. And in so doing, we will begin to see, and perhaps some of you already have, but we will see more of the miraculous and the supernatural because He is supernatural. He's God. Well, the first rebuke or the second rebuke, the rebuke of the demons is not that big a deal. It's the first rebuke that I'm curious about and interested in. The first rebuke is Jesus calls down the debaters. He calls down the debaters. How often, even today in the church, does a simple request for healing turn into dogmatic debates? How much time has been spent in religious bodies arguing over miracles and healing and how to go about it and who's right and who's wrong about the theological perspective of healing? That's what's happening here, gang. And what's tragic is while church people fight about it and argue about it and disagree about what Scripture says about healing, there are sick people waiting to be healed. There's a man with his son who is seized by a demon And everybody's forgotten about him because apparently the apostles are trying to cast it out and the scribes begin to bait them into this argument and now they're going at it. And crowds are gathering watching. Oh, Jesus, people are now arguing with these guys and this is great. The world loves when religious people fight. Meanwhile, here's the dad. You know? (laughs) Someone, my son, help, here. This argument is going on. Jesus terms it two ways. He calls them an unbelieving and a perverse generation. You unbelieving generation, apistos in the Greek, it means without faith. You're a generation without faith. The problem, gang, with entering the realm of debate and argument is when we do that, our faith has a tendency to at best get rattled and at worst get stuck off on the shelf. When we get drawn into arguing, about what we believe instead of just sharing what we believe. Would you be on guard about that, brothers and sisters? Because people are going to try and bait you. Non-believers are going to try to bait you into arguments about it. You're not here to argue the truth. You don't have to prove the truth. The Lord doesn't need you to be the standard bearer of His truth. His truth is going to stand. Don't worry about it. What the Lord has asked you to do and asked me to do is tell them about Jesus. Show them Jesus. Be revealers of Jesus. Be people who love, who are about the ministry of reconciliation. Not people who argue and debate and fight. Just tell the truth. If they don't agree or don't believe it, okay. Bring it up on another day. Keep telling them the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Paul's writing to Pastor Tim and he says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Don't speculate. Don't speculate about, by the way, what Scripture says. Go look. That's why it's there. Well, I think it says somewhere this, and that's what I believe. Don't say I think. No. 
Be sure of what you believe. No speculating. It says the Lord's bondservant, 2 Timothy 2.24, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. See, that's the point. You don't want to beat someone over the head to get them to the truth. You want them to come to that place of accepting God through repentance and then finding the truth. It's the kindness of God, the Bible tells us, that leads to repentance, not the heaviness of a Bible banger's Bible. So you bring them to the truth in love. And they may come to their senses, Paul says, and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In the story before us, that's what's going on. There is a boy who is in the snare of the devil. And nothing's being done about it because the religious people are fighting and ignoring the real need. It's right there in front of them. Man, that will turn people off faster than just about anything else. Well, Rick, if we're not supposed to debate for our faith, what are we supposed to do? Show them to Jesus. Which is what the apostles should have done in the first place. Especially seeing that they were unable to heal this boy. Something's not right. Man, we need to find Jesus. And as the scribes were baiting them, how much better would it have been if they had said, you know, we'll talk to you guys in a few minutes, but we really need to get this boy to Jesus. We've sent a couple of the guys off to get him. We'll talk to you after, you know, but let's get Jesus back here because we know Jesus can take care of this. We know he can make this right. That's how to heal a hurting world. Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Billy and I were having a conversation just a while back, coming back up here from the south end of the island today and just talking about the fact that you know what if you want to see the supernatural and if you want to see healing and you want to see miracles don't go looking for the supernatural for healings and for miracles if you want to see that and be involved in that you go looking for Jesus you put all your focus your energy your heart your passion on Jesus Christ and the rest will be taken care of it's an unbelieving and evil generation that looks for a sign it's a faithful generation that looks for Jesus Christ. And that's what he's inviting us to. And I love this line. What does Jesus say? You unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I put up with you? How long, uh, how long will I be with you? He says, bring him here to me. That's what needed to happen. Bring the boy to me. You see, the reality, gang, when it comes to healing, is that it's never about you, and it's never about me. Whether it's my healing that I need, or someone else's healing that I'm interceding for, it's not about me. I am not the key figure in the process. Jesus is. My job, as Les likes to say, is I'm a messenger boy. I'm just getting the word out that this is where Jesus is. Come with me. We'll go see Him together. I'll bring you to Him because He's the one who can handle this problem. So Jesus says to the distressed dad, bring him here to me. And that's our role, bringing people to Jesus. He also says they're a perverted generation. That word perversion. Diastrepho in the Greek. It literally means distorted or corrupted. You're a distorted generation, Jesus is saying. You guys are corrupting something here. You're twisting something. The apostles gang, I believe, is who he's referring to here because they have now distorted their commission. What commission? Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Take a look at this. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 7.
You may recall in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is giving a commission to His apostles. This is what I call the first commission. It's not the great commission. That's Matthew 28. We'll get to that. That's the commission for all the church. The first commission was the commission to the apostles where He commissioned them to go specifically to Israel. To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in verse 7, listen to what He says. As you go preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and what? Cast out demons. That commission was not over, gang. Jesus commissioned and empowered the apostles to cast out demons. That was their charge. That was what they were supposed to be about. So for them to go to this Father, for the Father to come to them and have the Son that was demon-possessed, and for them to try to cast it out was the right thing to do. That was their commission. They were supposed to be trying to cast out demons. But they had perverted the power. They had twisted and corrupted the power given to them. How did they do that? Gang, the first commission was not about casting out demons. It was not about the miracles. The first commission was about the kingdom. And and that's where I believe the apostles get off here. They, They got twisted off of the focus on the kingdom and the king, and they got focused on trying to produce the miracle of of casting out the demon, and they couldn't do it. Now they had probably, up to this point, I'm assuming they've already cast out some demons. They've had success. But suddenly now, they have no success. Why? It's twisted. As they debated, the scribes, the kingdom is lost in the controversy. And the apostles still didn't get it. Back over in chapter 17. 17 and verse 19, it tells us that The disciples came to Jesus privately, no doubt slightly embarrassed. And they said, Why could we not drive it out? And He said to them, Because of your littleness of faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. I mean, that's absolutely amazing, gang. So you might say, well, okay, so my ability to heal or to be healed then depends on my having a bigger faith, right? Not necessarily. Yes and no. It does depend on faith. But I believe the reason why Jesus points to the mustard seed here, the smallest of all, at least of that kind of seed, the reason He points to it is is the size of your faith is not what matters, gang. It's the quality. Because within a mustard seed, there was a quality of an ability to build to grow something big, something fast and amazing. The quality of the mustard seed is is the issue here. It's not the quantity, it's not the size, it's not how big, it's not how, how grandiose your faith may be. Now we do need a bigger faith, but again, it's not the size. It's never measured, gang. Our, our faith is never measured by our power or our ability to show it off. That's, that's not faith. Now, I've shared before, my faith in Jesus is not measured at how well I can pull off a sermon. And it can easily come off like that. I mean, there are, there are Sundays where, you know, I'm sorry, but I just feel like I hit it out of the park. Boy, I was on. At least in my own heart. I was a little hyper. You know, and I was on it, and I was just nailing it. And, you know, someone comes up afterwards and says, man, Rick, you just hit it, you know, and, 
And I walk out, and yeah. And you know what, what the, the implication there is for so many sitting listening? And I know because this is the way I, I saw it growing up. Man, Rick is really a man of faith. That's not faith. That's teaching. Now, prayerfully, it's going to be born out of faith and trust and prayer and, and study, but, but that moment in time, that 20 minutes, okay, that hour and a half, whatever it is, okay, that's not faith. We look at that and we look at, at anybody in an upfront, so you go to a Chris Tomlin concert and he performs well and the worship's fantastic and his voice is spot on and the guitar playing is great and at the end of the concert you walk away and go man he's such a man of faith no it was a performance that is not, the, that is not his faith you know where Chris Tomlin's faith shows up when nobody sees him but Jesus that's where my faith is real and you know don't get me wrong I'm not saying that I'm sitting up here faking this whole thing But the picture of faith, gang, the quality of our faith is borne out in the day-to-day moments when we're with our wives, our children, our husbands, our friends, our family. When we're just with those who know us best. And tonight I can sit up here and I can teach the Word to you. You were not at my house last night when I got all, all over Hannah's case and she was completely innocent. I was just grumpy and in a bad mood. I had to go down and apologize to my daughter just so I could sleep. You know, and if you saw that, you go, oh man, what little faith. No. That was a moment in time too. The size of my faith, gang. Yeah, if you're a note taker, jot this down. The size of my faith is measured by the depth of my dependency on my Father. The more I depend on God, the deeper the faith. The more I depend on myself or my ability to produce results the smaller my faith. And in a world game where we are so interested in what we see with our eyes, this whole thing gets perverted. And that was the problem with the apostles. They were looking to produce a miracle. They were not depending on Jesus to do what needed to be done here. People in the Word of Faith camp of the church, they say all you have to do If you really have faith, all you have to do to produce a miracle or to have a healing is to claim the promise. And if your faith is big enough, you'll receive it. But all you have to do is speak it once. Name it and claim it. You have to speak it three, four, five times. And you really don't have faith. Well, that's interesting to me because Jesus prayed three times in the garden for the cup to be passed from Him. Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Three times Jesus went and prayed and poured out his heart before the Father that he not have to go through the crucifixion. And then he would come back, and there were the apostles sound asleep. And he'd wake them up, guys. Pray with me. And he'd go back a second time. Three times at least Jesus did that. Did he not have enough faith? He obviously was not able to name it, claim it. Well, neither was Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul talks about the fact that I prayed three times for this thorn in my flesh to be removed. What was the thorn in his flesh? We're not sure. It's all kinds of speculation, but it's not necessary to even guess. He, there was just a problem in his life that he prayed God would take away. Three times. Why? Because Paul didn't have enough faith? No. 
In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.9, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What is God saying? Depend on me, Paul. Depend on me. In a world that highlights and elevates independence, God is saying, I want you to be dependent on me for everything. I want you to be dependent on me down to your every breath. I want you to know that you cannot take the next step unless you're holding on to me. That was the whole exercise of the 40 years in the wilderness. To force the the Israelites, His people, into a position where they had to depend on Him to survive. And I think we've lost that a bit. I think we've perverted faith. Because it's not about depending on Him, it's about performing and showing what we are capable of doing. Paul and Jesus, Paul had this in common with Jesus actually, and that was absolute dependency on the will of the Father. Not as I will, Father, but as you will. Now I love the dad in the story. Because as all this arguing arguing is going on, this, this dad is undeterred by the foolishness of the scribes and the apostles. He doesn't walk away. Tragically, a lot of people do. When, when church people argue with non-church people, a lot of people go, ah, I don't need any of it, and just walk away. This dad didn't. He didn't give up. He stayed there. This argument's going on, but his son still has a need, and the moment he sees, he sees Jesus, man, pew, he makes a beeline for him. He goes straight to him. He falls on his knees, says, Lord, have mercy on me. And in Mark's version, Mark chapter 9, verse 22, the Father cries out, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I love Jesus' response. He said to him, If? (laughs) If you can? All things are possible to him who believes. Again, translate that. All things are possible to him whose faith is dependent 100% on the will of the Father. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's the prayer. If you're struggling with your faith, gang, that is the prayer to borrow from this dad in his despair and apply in your life. I do believe, Lord Jesus. Help my unbelief. I'm struggling with what's going on here, Lord. It's not because I don't believe you're there. I know you're there, but I need to know more. I trust you, but I need to trust more. I'm depending on you for this, Jesus, but I need to depend more. Help my unbelief. Because I'll tell you what, you're not going to find your faith anywhere else. Jesus is the one who deepens your faith. Jesus is the one who gives you more faith to get you through the season of life that you're in. I believe. Help my unbelief. By by the way, it's interesting. It says in verse 24 of Mark chapter 9, actually says right after that, verse 25, um, that a crowd was gathering and so quickly Jesus cast the demon out. Jesus was not a showboater. He saw people running from all around to see what was going to happen and he made it happen before it turned into a big circus. He took care of it quickly and quietly. You want a bigger faith? I hope you do because I know I do. Then we pray this prayer. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We put our faith into Jesus' hands. Our dependency, even to having faith, is solely on Him. Now, Jesus gives the confused apostles one more tidbit of insight as to why they were unable to cast out this demon. And this verse, I think, is highly important because it gives us insight into the spiritual realm and literally into how to battle 
the demonic. Check this out, verse 21. He said, This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This is a tough demon that's attached itself somehow to this kid. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, let me give you a little textual note here for you Bible thinkers. Some of your Bibles you may have noticed have this verse in parentheses with a little footnote that says something along the lines of early manuscripts do not contain this verse. I think that's really unfortunate. I understand why the NASB does that. I know like in the NIV it doesn't even have the verse there. In fact, the verse is itself stuck down in the footnotes. And the reason they do this, let me explain this just to you, that there are some different texts, Greek texts, from which we derive the English version of the New Testament. There are different Greek texts that were used to translate. Most of our Bibles today, NIV, even the NASB, and others, most of them come from the Nestle Allen text and from other Greek texts that are highly accurate, excellent texts, but are slightly different than the New Testament that the King James was taken from, which is called the Textus Receptus. don't need to write this down or remember any of this. But I'm telling you that to say this. The scholars, in their attempt to be as literal and clear as possible, They want to point out every possibility. So verse 21, they say, well, this wasn't in some of the earlier manuscripts. It wasn't. It wasn't in the earlier Nestle Allen manuscripts. It was in the Textus Receptus. But when you see a verse like this, rather than saying, oh, well, I'm just not going to buy that. That's shaky scripture. So I'm just not going to buy that. Let me encourage you to go deeper with the verse. Now, I believe this verse is legitimate. And I believe so, not only, well I've talked about this before, there's external and there's internal evidence in understanding the Bible. The external evidence is what I was just talking about, the text that it was used. Do we have an accurate translation of an accurate text? Do we have a text that we know was used to translate this? That's external. History is external evidence. Do we know that this verse possibly was used by people in the church early on? And we do. As a matter of fact, this very verse was quoted early on, earlier than we even have a a text for. Earlier than the earliest Greek copy that we have of the New Testament, this verse was quoted by some of the church fathers. Well, there's some more external evidence where you say, oh, okay, so if someone like Irenaeus or Jerome or some of these earlier guys, they use this verse in a sermon and and we can see that, then we can make an assumption. The verse was there in the earlier text that we no longer have our hands on. External evidence. But there's also internal evidence. And that's where you look at the verse and you compare it to the rest of the Bible. Is this legitimate as, as in terms of Bible study? We know in Mark chapter 9, in this same story, that Jesus said, this kind does not go out except by prayer. So now you've got a double, you've got another verse saying the same thing in essence. So you know at least Jesus is emphasizing the need for prayer in this kind of you know, rebuking of a demon. The fasting part is the part that then is kind of stuck on there. And we say, well, okay, was that added by Jesus? Did Mark just not put it in, but Matthew did? Is that legitimate too? So you have to ask the question about fasting. Did Jesus teach on fasting? Well, yes, He did. Did Jesus Himself fast? Yes, He did. Did He explain and express the importance of it? Yes, He did. So I come back to verse 21, and after all that I say, I think it's a legitimate verse. And I think it's legitimate to, to take it. A lot of the... What, what Chuck Smith calls a lot of the power verses in the Bible, like the last eight verses of the book of Mark, very powerful verses there. 
And a lot of Bibles set that aside and say that whole section is not in earlier manuscripts. And, and yet there's some fantastic internal evidence for those eight verses. I'm not going to get into that right now. I could, but I'm not going to. But here's the bottom line. Jesus had talked about fasting before. Matthew chapter 6. Remember he talked about how to fast. Saying in essence, when you fast, don't put on a gloomy face. Don't make sure everyone knows that you're fasting. No, when you fast, it's between you and the Father. Keep it quiet. Get dressed and and nice yourself up a bit. Ladies, put on some makeup. Guys, shave. Make yourself look presentable so when you're fasting, no one knows what's going on but your Father. And He sees it in secret and will reward you in secret. So Jesus talked about that. But I think bottom line, the real debate is the difficulty of this verse. I mean, what, what, what can this possibly mean? This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. As, as, as a tool of, of fighting and casting out demons, this kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting. What does that mean for us? Well, we know prayer restores what we were talking about before. It restores or, or returns our dependency to the Father. I mean, that's a real simple definition of prayer, gang. It's rely on God. And when we pray, it turns us back to God. It restores that dependency we have on Him. What does fasting do? Fasting removes our dependency on the flesh. So that's the whole point of fasting, to get us out of the flesh. To teach us how not to feed the appetite, in the most literal sense. So that being the case, prayer restores our dependency on the Father. Fasting removes our dependency on the flesh. And this is the powerful insight that Jesus gives into spiritual warfare that we've got to understand. Listen closely now. We are not called to be firefighters. We are called to be faithful. We are not called to be firefighters. We are called to be faithful. What do you mean, Rick? Firefighters respond to every emergency and crisis. Quick response, immediate response. Faithful people are called to respond from quietness and trust. From a place, listen to me, from a place of prayer and fasting. The apostles obviously were caught off guard when this man came to him with a demon-possessed son. Obviously, it kind of flipped them out a bit. And I can hear them saying, well, praying and fasting, Jesus, well, there was no time. The man brought us his son. He was seizing in front of us. There was no time to stop and call for a day of fasting. There was no time to pray. The boy was in distress, and then the scribes came in, and they started ticking us off, and and, and we got freaked out. That's because they were functioning from firefighter mode. And it happens all the time in the church gang. There's a crisis. Quick, quick response. We've got to hurry. We've got to make this better right now. We've got to do something immediately. That's firefighting. And I've seen more damage come from firefighting in the church when what was called for was faithfulness. Okay, but that still doesn't explain if you have a crisis in front of you, how can you take time to get off and pray and fast when you've got to deal with the crisis? The only way is to already have been praying and fasting. That's faithfulness. So that when the fire sparks, you're already ready to deal with it because you've already been with the Lord. You've already been praying. You've already been fasting. I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is not in Scripture. But I have to wonder what the other nine were doing while Peter, James, and John got the special inner circle retreat with Jesus up the mountain. Do you suppose there was some back-talking and some, well, I guess they're the buddies. I guess they're the favorites. 
You know, that's not really fair. I don't know why he didn't pick me to go up the mountain with him. They get to go off and do their own thing. We're just down there. You know, I don't know. But I'll tell you what. Sounds like human nature to me to think that they probably were not in the frame of mind for praying and fasting when this crisis hit. And I believe that's why Jesus points it out. You know, it's a perverted and unbelieving generation. And this kind of demon, it doesn't come out except by praying and fasting. You cannot put this fire out unless you have been long-term faithful. And then, then you can deal with it. Jesus is not talking about the mechanics of praying and fasting gang. He's talking about a lifestyle of faithfulness. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop. It doesn't matter where you are. In the car, in the shower, at work, eating a meal, hanging out with your kids, whatever you're doing, pray without ceasing. Invite the Father into every moment, every aspect of your life. Paul says, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I think about the prophetess Anna. Great example of someone who was not a firefighter, she was just faithful. Anna was in the temple. And we're told, Luke 2.37, that she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. And you know what it did for her? The moment the baby Jesus was brought for dedication in the temple, Anna knew he was Messiah. How did she know? Because she never ceased to leave the presence of God. She was always in an attitude of prayer and fasting. And when the baby Jesus came along, she saw him for who he was. She knew it was him. Same thing with us. When we're walking in a lifestyle of faithfulness, of prayer and fasting, of being with the Lord, and Jesus does something, we see Him. We know it's Him. And we're the first to invite Him into every crisis, rather than to be those who jump and lose control. Gang, there is spiritual warfare that can only be waged in the quietness and the trust of a constant relationship with God. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, I want to finish this out, finish out this chapter. Verse 22, they they head back south. Jesus and the boys, they're headed toward the Galilee. Verse 22 tells us, While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. I'm not sure how much clearer Jesus could have made it than that. And they were deeply grieved. The ministry of Jesus, especially in the Galilee region, is fast coming to a close. The cross is looming. I believe Jesus could see it before Him there on the hill called Calvary. And Jesus continues from here on out to speak more and more plainly about His death and His resurrection. And they were obviously highly concerned. They were deeply grieved. This was impacting them in a big way. They knew Jesus was telling them something awful was coming. They did not want to hear it. They were upset by it. And the Bible tells us, gang, that they wouldn't completely understand until everything was fulfilled. Then they'd look back and they'd go, Ah, now I know why He was telling us that over and over. Because it's exactly what was going to happen. Well, in verse 24 it tells us, interesting little story, love this one. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter. And they said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, I think we might add impulsively, yes. (laughs) Peter didn't know. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, 
Jesus knew this went on. So Jesus catches Peter and says, Hey, hey, what do you think, Simon? By the way, I'm wondering right there, why does he call him Simon again instead of Peter? I, I, I don't know this. You might want to check this out for yourself. It would be interesting to see if he calls him Simon in more faithless moments. So what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from the strangers? And when Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Jesus said to him, the sons are exempt. He said in verse 27, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. How cool is that? How does Jesus pay taxes? He goes fishing. (laughs) I wish that worked today. But here are the things I want you to catch on this. It's very interesting, this little miracle that we we rip by so quickly. Number one, the fish mouth miracle. We'll just call it that. It's only recorded by Matthew. You don't see this in any of the other Gospels. Now, that actually makes sense. Matthew was a tax collector. I think this is a miracle that would have impacted Matthew personally. He would have gone, how cool. He paid the, you got that coin out of the fish with the, and you paid the, that is so cool I got to write that down so I think Matthew caught that because this made sense to him by the way it was a 1500 year old tax very familiar in Israel so that's the first thing to note second thing to note is this is the only miracle of Jesus that ever involved money it's the only one of all the things he did, this is the one that had money connected to it. It's the two drachma tax. Let me explain it to you. It's also called the half shekel tax. It was originally called for as a special tax when people gathered together. The book of Exodus tells us about it. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 11. It tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras, just to clear that up for you guys. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. That's the two drachma tax that's being talked about in our story. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord, listen, to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel, give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord, to make atonement for yourselves, or literally, to make atonement for your souls. This tax had two primary reasons behind it. It was a practical reason for the service of the temple. The people were gathered together, everyone paid the half shekel, all that money went in, and they were able to service and take care of originally the tabernacle, and then later after it, it was a temple tax. So it took care of temple services. That was the practical reason. But it had a symbolical reason as well. It was for the souls of the people. This, this silver coin, this half shekel, because silver in the Bible is a picture of redemption. Throughout the Old Testament, you see again and again silver show up as this symbol or picture of redemption. Even in this temple tax, pay this silver coin for the redemption or the restoration of your souls. 
But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so it wasn't that the people were buying redemption. It, was, it symbolized it. It reminded them that they needed redemption. So this is the only miracle of Jesus that involved money, and it was that temple tax that we're talking about right here. Third thing to note, this is the only miracle of Jesus that involved just one fish. Every other fish-involved miracle involved massive numbers of fish. Great catches of fish. This one is just one fish, and I point that out just to say the complexity of this miracle is astounding. Think about how this had to come together to be pulled off. Someone had to drop a coin, and not just any coin, but a half shekel into the Sea of Galilee. A fish had to snap up the coin and get it stuck in its gullet, not swallowing it all the way down, but stuck right there where you could see it if you opened up the mouth. This singular fish had to be the, the only fish caught on Peter's line on this particular day off the coast of the particular city of Capernaum. And Jesus had to know about this money-mouthed fish before any of this happened. It's amazing. It's really cool. The complexity alone moves it from a natural accident to a supernatural occasion as God made sure that coin was in that fish's mouth on Peter's line to be taken to pay the tax of his son, Jesus Christ. Now listen, number four, it's the only miracle Jesus ever performed to meet his own needs. Of all the miracles of Jesus, they were always about everybody else. This time, it was about Jesus. It was to pay the tax for Jesus. Matthew is declaring here in his Gospel, Jesus as the great King. You're the awesome King. Above all, God among us, God with us, Israel's King. But as the royal Gospel writer, he shares something that seems to be contraindicative of a noble background. He shares the fact that this King Jesus was so poor, he didn't even have a half shekel on his person to pay this tax. He didn't have the money to pay it. Jesus, for all his greatness, was a homeless man. The King of Israel. He said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8, verse 20. He was a homeless man. He had nothing. He was the King But he had nothing. And the only way this temple tax was going to get paid for Jesus was miraculously because he did not have it on him. But understand, gang, Jesus was exempt from the temple tax because he is the Son of God. He didn't have to pay the tax. That was the point of what he said. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, from strangers. And Jesus said, the sons are exempt. In other words... This poll tax that my father put on the temple doesn't apply to me. Because I'm the son. I don't pay that tax. But I'll tell you what, we don't want to offend or upset or bother anybody. Let's just fly under the radar on this one. Go get the coin out of the fish's mouth and take care of it. So Jesus performed this one single miracle to meet his own needs. Don't forget something here. That Jesus, being the Son of God being exempt from this temple tax, though he was a homeless man, never forgot where he came from. 
He never forgot that He was the Son of God. He never forgot His authority, His royalty. Don't you forget either. Brothers and sisters, if you've expressed faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son, you are a daughter of the King. You are not taxed by this world. I'm not saying don't pay your taxes, please. (laughs) Meet those obligations as they go up and up and up. But you are a son, a daughter of the King. Don't forget that. Don't forget your standing with the Lord and who you are and what He's done for you. Don't forget that your place is waiting for you in heaven. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, All of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Number five on this miracle. It's one of many miracles that Jesus performed for Peter. Peter would have a number of miracles done for him because not only was this, was this shekel found in the fish's mouth enough for Jesus, it was enough for Peter too. Notice that Jesus said, go and take it and give it to them for you and me. I'll pay yours too, Peter. Supernaturally. Miraculously. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew chapter 8. At least twice we know of, Jesus gave Peter a miraculous catch of fish. Luke chapter 5, John chapter 21. Jesus enabled Peter to walk on water, Matthew 14. Jesus healed the high priest's servant's ear that Peter impulsively cut off. Matthew 26. That's a great story. And Jesus would later send an angel to get Peter out of prison, Acts chapter 12. Peter experienced a lot of miracles in his life that Jesus accomplished for him. So Peter would later write from personal experience in 1 Peter 5.7, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter knew it. He felt it. He experienced it. Jesus really took care of me. And so Peter had the right to turn around to you and to me and to others listening to say, cast your anxiety on Him. Trust Him. Because He will meet your needs. I didn't have the money to pay the tax that day either. And He took care of it. My mother-in-law was sick. I couldn't do anything for her. He healed her. I was stuck in prison. Jesus got me out. Cast your anxiety on Him. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Number six and final. This is the only miracle in the New Testament where the outcome is not told to us. You notice how it ends? Jesus tells him what to do. He tells him what will happen and sends Peter on his way and the Bible never tells us if it came out that way. Never tells us if that's exactly what happened. So we don't know. There's no verse 28 in chapter 17. So Peter went down to the Sea of Galilee by Capernaum, cast a line, drew in a fish, pulled out the coin and paid the tax not there so we don't literally know if it happened or not yes we do of course we do we know it happened because Jesus said it would happen which is exactly what we've been talking about tonight isn't it we know he's going to heal because he says he wants to heal we know he's going to take care of us because he said he would take care of us We know that we are never alone, that He will be with us always, even to the very end of the age, because Jesus said He would be. How's your faith? How's your faith? Mustard seed? Seems about right, size-wise, for me. I think I can muster a mustard seed. 
How's the quality of your faith? This is what we need to ask God to increase. Solomon was dedicating the temple and in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, it tells us this great statement. He said, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel according to all that He promised. Listen, not one word has failed of all His good promise which He promised through Moses His servant. Not one word that He promised has failed. Do you believe that? Father, we pray for an increase of our faith. Lord Jesus, we invite Your Holy Spirit into and over this fellowship to increase our faith. To increase, Lord, the quality of our faith. We cry out again, we believe, help our unbelief. Deepen our dependency on You, Lord. May we be faithful in prayer and fasting and constancy of our walk with You. This, Lord... Oh, this is my heart's desire. This moves so much further than Sunday morning and Wednesday night and the occasional small group. Teach us, Lord, how to be faithful people, walking at all times with You in a constancy of relationship and dependency so when the fires spring up, we're not surprised. We're not thrown off our guard. We're not freaking out. We're just trusting You. Holy Spirit, we ask You to flow from our long-term faithfulness. And Father, if it be Your will and as it is Your will to heal those who are sick and diseased and distressed and hurting and broken, all the while as we continue to pray and fast and trust You with our lives. Shine your light, Lord Jesus, through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.